profits. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's cheaper labor. I mean, that's, 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 that's the bottom line here. Uh, an auto worker in Mexico makes just under $3 an hour. Um, and they're not unionized. Uh, they're not allowed to, basically, by its government control unions. And it's, uh, they really don't have a say in anything. Um, the biggest issue is, you know, I've had people say to me why, you know, well, they're, they're working for a lot cheaper. And I, my argument always is, are the vehicles any cheaper that are coming from Mexico? They're not. It's just the profits are going up to the top. Uh, they're not working with their employees, uh, obviously. If you look at Ford, Ford has an actually a, a pretty good relationship with the UAW. Um, in fact, the CEO came out a few years ago and said if it wasn't for the UAW, Ford would have been bankrupt. They sacrificed and saved us in our darkest hour. Uh, we did the same for General Motors, but obviously uh, they don't seem to understand that or they just don't seem to think that that's, uh, they have to work with their employees anymore. And, and, and it's very upsetting. Um, these jobs were saved to keep them in this country, and now we're moving them out. Uh, the last uh, study that was done, uh, Chrysler has 92 percent utilization in this country of their facilities. Um, Ford had 82, and General Motors was right about 70, and I've heard that's actually gone down even more now in this last year. Um, so you look at the plants that are closing in Lordstown, Ohio, Detroit Hamtramck. We have a couple transmission plants, uh, one in Baltimore and a few other in, uh, in Michigan. And these people are out of work. Or they have to, if they have enough seniority, they have to transfer. Um, and that's—people don't realize what it does to families. Um, I'm one of those people that worked in an assembly plant. I worked at Janesville Assembly in Janesville, Wisconsin, and that plant closed down at the end of 2008. Um, I had to move to where I am now, Hudson, Hudson, which I was lucky because I'm not too far from home, uh, a little over four hours. But I had to leave my wife and kids down there for almost six years because we couldn't sell our house because the whole economy in that area just, just went under. Um, it causes a lot of damage to families, a lot of divorces, uh, fathers and mothers not seeing their kids. Um, and they don't seem to understand that or they don't really seem to care. Um, it, like you said on Saturday, it sounded like we were going to uh, have a tentative agreement. It, it sounded really good, and then it went south overnight. Um, so we're waiting. I guess GM came out with a secret proposal last night to the UAW. Uh, we do not know what the contents of that is yet. Um, so we're going to wait and see what our leadership says, and uh, hopefully we're making progress forward again instead of taking two steps back like we did this weekend. So Let me ask you, in terms of the uh, of the, uh, the leverage that the United Auto Workers have, given the corporate America's uh, 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 move to go to just-in-time production, uh, when do you figure will be the time when General Motors will be forced to shut down its entire uh, chain of operations as a result of the fact that it can't get these cars uh, produced by you here in the United States? Well, we're already seeing some, uh, some fallout down. Uh, they closed the Silo Mexico uh, plant, which makes the Silverado and uh, the Sierra. So that has been closed because of the lack of parts. And now I heard uh, their other major uh, facility down there has uh, had some shutdowns, too. So it's starting to have a trickle-down effect. I, I guess it's coming to a point where GM's got to make a decision on, is it worth keep losing the money that we're losing on a daily basis? Are we going to come out ahead or behind on this? Um, I, I, I really don't believe that they 
I think they misunderstood our resolve when we went out. I think they thought we could break us within the first two, two to three weeks. Um, what, what this has really done is, is what I've seen in my, my local facility is it's actually strengthened the resolve. People are mad. People are mad and they're willing to stay out as long as it takes because, uh, you know, we believe in what we're doing. We believe that in this country, the wealth keeps flowing up to the 1% and keeps going less and less to the 99 below. And we're going to have two uh, classes of, of people in this country pretty soon, the extremely wealthy and, and the poor. And uh, we decided that we had to draw a line in the sand and say enough's enough. Um, the silver lining in this situation is the support that we have received from our brothers and sisters of other unions, uh, Teamsters, SEIU, uh, uh, the teachers, uh, the, the bakers union, I'm, I'm talking about everybody, the steel workers. Um, they have come out in mass, not just to our facility, but to every facility in this country and helped out. They've walked the picket line with us. They brought food. Uh, they brought gift cards for some of our temporary employees that are struggling a little more and uh, it's just been the outpouring of solidarity has has really been an eye-opener and it's a, a welcome a welcome thing because uh, unions have been struggling for many years in this country and it's nice to see that it's making a comeback and people are, are tired of the status quo well Steve Frisk want to thank you so much for being with us striking GM worker former president of UAW local 722 currently a union steward when we come back, we'll go to Chicago to speak with the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, which has voted to go on strike next week. Stay with us.
right, and welcome back to Leak the Review Tuesday edition. Oh, goodness. I'm going to share a few news headlines and then get back into some more pre-recorded interviews. This is from Frontline and PBS. Go to pbs.org. Uh, Trump administration shifting to privatize migrant child detention. This came out on October 3rd, 2019 by Garen Spurk from the AP and Martha Mendoza, also from the AP. And the story is part of an ongoing joint investigation between the Associated Press and Frontline on the treatment of migrant children, which includes an upcoming film. And please do check out this article. And uh, there's a bit of a, a video here. that the children are borrowed. They're borrowed for, for our purpose, right? So a lot of times when something is borrowed, you take care of them better than you would something that is your own. So we want the children to leave here and say that they had a great experience. And it says uh, AP and Frontline were given exclusive access to a shelter in Texas holding some of the youngest migrant children. This is about uh, almost a four-minute video that they have shared with this article. Well, a lot of script. And it says the shelter is run by Comprehensive Health Services, a private for-profit company paid for by the U.S. government. In joint investigation, AP and Frontline learned that the Trump administration has started shifting caretaking of migrant children toward the private sector. There is a profit, there is a, a price incentive, but it's not a detention incentive. The, the question about, is there incentive to, to detain children? Absolutely not. CHS is owned by Caliburn International Corp and is so far the only private company caring for children. Ugh, I cannot hear his fucking voice and I will not burden you with that as well. Former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly joined Caliburn's board after leaving the Trump administration. Shocking. Uh, as Homeland, as excuse me, as Secretary of Homeland Security Kelly, who was the person we played earlier, who was interrupted, thankfully, supported a policy to separate children from their parents. And I'm going to saying it would deter people from migrating to the U.S. And I'm muting it so we don't have to hear Mike Pence's stupid voice. Then there's a cop talking. We also don't want to fucking hear from him. One privilege to running a show. You get to silence people in positions of power who cause great harm. If only it were this easy in other areas of life. Well, let's go back. Of one of these companies. It doesn't pass us. Ugh. Okay. And they have more footage as well. Uh, Kelly was criticized after he was seen at Homestead, a large CHS-operated facility for migrant teens in Florida. At its peak, Homestead held about 2,400 children. All have now been transferred to other facilities or reunited with their families. One teenage girl who spoke with AP and Frontline said she and other children were constantly watched while held inside Homestead with alarms on the windows.
and says it, it seems pretty, I mean, it's pretty there, but at the same time, it wasn't because there were so many kids, so many rules, and every day was the same routine. And this kid says that she felt so alone and says, well, it was kind of like camp, but it was also like prison because I felt trapped. I felt frustrated and desperate. This is one of the writers of the article, Garen Spurk. Ugh. And again, it's so bizarre to me how people can wrap their minds around being parts of these companies that hold kidnapped children. We have more video footage. And... They're talking to a former DHS immigration official. And there's more information at the story. Again, if you go to pbs.org, and you can find much more info on this there. Ugh. Also, activists are pressuring lawmakers to stop Amazon Ring's police surveillance partnership. And that's an article at Vox.com. With no oversight and accountability, Amazon's technology creates a seamless and easily automated experience for police to request and access footage without a warrant and then store it indefinitely. That sounds terrifying. And this was written by Ronnie. That's R-A-N-I Mola, M-O-L-L-A. And you can follow Ronnie on Twitter and also find this article at Vox.com. Starts off with more than 30 civil rights organizations, including Races, Media Justice, and the National Immigration Law Center, published a joint letter Tuesday asking lawmakers to end police partnerships with Amazon's ring. And you can find more information. Again, feeling pretty exhausted. I'm going to go now to an interview that was on Democracy Now! That's about the case that was heard this morning um, from the SCOTUS case, and it's an interview with Laverne Cox and Chase Strangio. And you can find it again at democracynow.org. A new term today in Washington, D.C. The court will be hearing major cases this year involving reproductive rights, immigration, the Second Amendment, and LGBTQ rights. On Tuesday, the court will hear arguments in three cases to determine whether LGBTQ people can be fired from their jobs due to their sexual orientation or gender identity. It's been described as, quote, the most important case directly addressing LGBTQ people ever to reach the United States Supreme Court. Under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, employers cannot discriminate against employees on the basis of sex, as well as race, color, national origin, and religion. But the Trump administration claims the law does not cover discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. One of the cases centers on a transgender woman from Michigan named Amy Stevens, who was fired from her job at a funeral home in 2013. When I was fired, it made me mad, to say the least. I was hurt, 
that I was being treated that way after the commitment and service that I had been providing. Um, and that's when it finally hit home that we weren't treated the same as everybody else. And that it was time that somebody stood up and said enough is enough. The cases mark the first time the Supreme Court will rule on LGBTQ rights since conservative justice Brett Kavanaugh replaced Anthony Kennedy, who had written many of the court's major LGBTQ rights rulings. We are joined right now by two guests. Laverne Cox is with us, award-winning transgender actress, longtime trans rights activist, best known for her role of Sophia Brissett on the show Orange is the New Black. In 2014, she became the first transgender person on the cover of Time magazine, and the first openly transgender person to be nominated for a primetime Emmy Award in an acting category. We're also joined by Chase Strangio, deputy director for transgender justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project. His work includes impact litigation, as well as legislative and administrative advocacy on behalf of LGBTQ people and people living with HIV across the United States. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Tuesday is a very significant day in the Supreme Court. Laverne Cox, talk about the cases that are before the high court. Well, it's the first time the Supreme Court will hear any case involving transgender rights, transgender civil rights, with Amy Stevens' case. And there's two other cases of, um, where two gay men were also fired from their jobs simply for being who they are. Um, this is the first time the court will hear um, case, um, cases about whether or not Title VII applies to the LGBTQ plus community. This has huge ramifications for us, because we know that this administration has been trying to take transgender people specifically, but the LGBTQ community in general, um, out of the realm of protections. Um, the leaked memo that we all remember from a year ago, um, where they want to change the definition of sex so that trans folks wouldn't have any recourse under the law, the protests that ensued after that. The um, new directive from HHS and from HUD, where they want to discriminate against us in housing and in health care. Um, so this is really huge, not just for the LGBTQ plus community, but for also any worker who might not conform to someone else's idea of how they should express their gender. Mm. So you did something very unusual at the Emmys. Uh, your guest, uh, your plus one, uh, was one Chase Strangio. Yes. And I wanted to go to—well, describe um, uh, the scene and why you decided to do this. Well, I, I noticed that not a lot of people were talking about this case. I think it's— the most consequential civil rights case for LGBTQ rights in my lifetime. No one was really talking about it except Chase and a few other people. And I thought, what can I do? And so I was nominated for my third Emmy this year and was going to be going to the Emmys. And I knew that would be a platform where a lot of people would be paying attention. And so I, um, I was like, well, we should take Chase and we should talk about this case on the red carpet. My stylist got the idea of making a clutch that said Title VII, October 8th, Supreme Court. Um, Edie Parker designed it. And we went and we went with the mission. And we're showing the images of that. Let's hear Chase on the red carpet with Laverne Cox. 
October 8th, everyone should be aware that the administration is asking the Supreme Court to make it legal to fire workers just because they're LGBTQ. And this is actually going to transform the lives of LGBTQ people and people who are not LGBTQ, anyone who departs from sex stereotypes, like all the fabulous people here, for example. So we really need to show up October 8th and pay attention because our lives are really on the line. So that's Chase Strangio of the ACLU, the um, plus one with Laverne Cox at the Emmys. Again, as I said earlier, uh, Laverne is the first openly trans actress to be nominated for a primetime Emmy in any acting category. Um, so you use that moment um, uh, where the world was watching. That was an interview on E! Chase. Describe further the significance of this case and the Trump administration's stance. How has it changed? Yeah, so, so, you know, as Laverne said, tomorrow the Supreme Court is going to be hearing arguments in these three cases that will absolutely transform the legal landscape for LGBTQ people, um, and not just LGBTQ people, but all women in particular, but anyone who, who departs from, from sex stereotypes. And, and what is really astounding, particularly in Amy Stevens' case, is that the case was filed uh, in 2014 by the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That is the agency that enforces Title VII. And that agency brought the case, arguing that when Amy was fired, it violated Title VII. And so the case is actually the EEOC versus Harris Funeral Homes, the employer that fired Amy just because she, she is transgender. And so it went up through the courts um, in that posture. After the election, the presidential election of 2016, the ACLU intervened on behalf of Amy because we were concerned that uh, that the agency and the administration would no longer defend the rights of trans people under federal law, and, and for good reason, because now we are before the Supreme Court and the Trump administration has changed sides. The United States is siding with the employers, urging the Supreme Court to make a rule for everyone that it is lawful to fire someone just because they, they are LGBTQ. And I want people to understand that the arguments they are advancing are so incredibly, uh, like, staggeringly conservative and dangerous, because what they are saying is that we want a world under Title VII that goes all the way back to at least pre-1989 in the landmark case of Price Waterhouse, that allows employers to enforce sex stereotypes as long as they do so against men and women. And so what I mean by that is the Trump administration and the Alliance Defending Freedom, who is representing Amy's employer, really do want a world where a woman could be fired for not being feminine enough as long as they would fire a man for not being masculine enough. So imagine you go to work and you're a father and you say, I need to leave at five to care for my kids. And they fire you because they say, no, men are supposed to be working and women are supposed to be the primary caretakers of children. That is the world they want. And so this is really a radical transformation of sex discrimination law that they're asking for. Hmm. I want to go back to Amy Stevens, the woman behind the first transgender civil rights case to go before the Supreme Court. Speaking at an ACLU news conference last week, she explained her decision to come out as a transgender. Woman. I've been living basically two lives, one at home and in public, and one at work. And in the beginning, that wasn't so bad. But as time goes on and as time progressed, I got to the point that living two lives, being two people, was becoming downright impossible. And I knew that I couldn't keep going that way.
and things came to a head in November of 2012 when I stood in the backyard with a gun to my chest pondering the question if I can't go forward and I can't go backwards where does that leave me? And if this is all I have to look forward to then what's the point continuing? And in that hour going over that and over that in my mind chose life and I realized that I liked me too much to just disappear and go away. So that's Amy Stevens, the woman behind the first transgender civil rights case to go before the Supreme Court. Um, talk about the journey Amy Stevens' case took through the courts until now. So, so Amy Stevens' case was filed in federal court. Um, she won in, in the lower court, so the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in her favor, as the majority of federal courts have for trans litigants. Um, it has actually been the law, you know, for two decades in many uh, circuits of, of, the, of the federal judiciary that firing someone or discriminating against someone because they are transgender is per se sex discrimination under the law, as well as a prohibition on the—as uh, well as a violation of the prohibition on sex stereotypes. So Amy won below. Um, this was, you know, the, the court said, no, you, you cannot fire someone just because they are transgender. Um, and then it was the employer and the United States that are now before the Supreme Court arguing for a rule that it is, in fact, lawful to fire someone um, for being transgender, and, and, we, and we represent Amy. I think something that's incredibly poignant about Amy's remarks and that the, the letter she sent her employer is, is that she was going to be the same person, the same valued employee, and she was living this deeply painful lie, and she needed to be who she was. We only get one chance to, to live our lives as who we are. And so she was going to be an even better worker, because she wasn't going to have to hide this core truth of herself. And she has the courage, she comes out, and then she gets fired, and has spent the last six years fighting the termination while she faces no job, lost her health care, you know, her health go, you know, is in decline because this is what happens when you lose your livelihood. And so hopefully we can appeal to the court on the simple proposition that Congress wrote a broad law that prohibits sex discrimination and it covers trans people as most lower courts have held. We're going to break and then come back to talk about the issue of violence against trans people and how you think that this links. Uh, we are speaking with Chase Strangio, Deputy Director for Transgender Justice. Um, with the ACLU's LBGT and HIV project, and actress Laverne Cox. Stay with us. Yeah. 
Sheeta Diamond. This is Democracy Now!, Democracy Now!. All right, and welcome back to Weekly Review. Going to wrap up the show right now. Thanks so much for listening. I recognize it's been super low energy. However, there's a lot of information out there. Hopefully, we all can take some stuff away from this. Also, I want to promote an event that's happening on October 18th, and this is uh, to close the 850 Bryant Jail. So there's an event invite on Facebook. Join the effort to close 850 Bryant and build a better San Francisco. Come to the hearing on Friday, October 18th at 10.30 a.m. to hold our government accountable. Hashtag dismantle PIC. Hashtag shut down 850 Bryant. This was tweeted by the Coalition on Homelessness. You can follow them on Twitter at the Coalition SF. You can also follow me on Twitter. I share a lot of these this information that I don't always get to on the show at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And plug for the station mutinyradio.fm we got shows here every day of the week so please donate and check out shows that are here and also think that yeah there's something else but we're gonna just wrap up with some more music thanks so much for tuning in we'll be back with another pre-recorded show next week have a great week everybody
Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube. We watch the best movies that, uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Michael 
apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020 coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. But you can apply now through November 30th. 50 shows in seven days. Over 50 comics from all around the U.S. And you could be one of them. Go to the Mutiny Radio website, www.mutinyradio.fm. Click the Apply button. Pay that 20 bucks. Donate to Mutiny Radio and apply with your five-minute video to the Mutiny Radio 5th Annual Comedy Festival coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. Submissions close November 30th. Get those submissions in now. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> so 
subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. in San Francisco comedy scene. Maybe you want time to do jokes. Well, this is the place to do it. Mutiny Radio. We have three open mic a week just for you. Monday's joke workshop from 6 to 8. Come and get four minutes and four minutes of commentary from your comedian peers. Come on Fridays for happy hour 6 to 8 here at Mutiny Radio. All the comics wonderful hilarious people in the scene get to know them hang out do a set have it recorded here and on a podcast at mutinyradio.fm and come in on saturdays from four to six get long sets because no one ever shows up so it's like stage time and people can listen come on by to mutiny radio get your comedy on baby Tigers, you never have to ride alone. Even though we're lawyers, riding is in our blood. Trust Law Tigers to help after a motorcycle accident. Without representation, there are no guarantees you'll get a fair shake. Call 1-800-LAWTIGERS, that's 529-8443, or visit their website at lawtigers.com for a motorcycle lawyer in any state. That's Law Tigers, Americans Motorcycle Lawyer lawyers at www.lawtigers.com. Never ride alone. Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Chromatic Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Will do 
try and pull us through But plastic is king Up on its throne We have to tear that chair succeed at last mm -hmm. yeah. Persecution you must be Win and lose you've got to get your share Got your mind set on a dream
All right, and welcome to the weekly review with Roman. Today it's Friday, January twenty fourth, twenty twenty. Starting off the show with some music as we usually do. And in the last few weeks, I've gotten, I've changed up the show a bit over the years, and now I'm in the stage of playing records on the show. I have before, but really just concentrating on it. The San Francisco Public Library is a great resource to get albums there, and we have record players here, and it sounds so good. And it's also a great reminder of how um, just albums that, playing full albums and being able to listen to them is a really nice reminder that that's possible. So I'll be doing that on the show today. Hear a little bit of feedback. Hopefully you all don't hear it. We've got a few technical difficulties here at the station, which might not come as a surprise. It's a very DIY space and bare bones. And right now, our fourth microphone is down, and the big speaker on top is not quite working so well. So if you have a few bucks to spare, please do come by. Drop it off in the bucket here. Also, we have a Venmo set up now. It's at Mutiny Radio, all one word. And if you go to mutinyradio.fm, you can find info there. Also, if you have any technology you want to donate, headphones, microphones, cords, anything like that, it would be super, and or know-how. That would be super helpful. Appreciate it a lot. Today we have an informative show coming up, and I say informative because I know I'll definitely be learning a lot, and I've got a lot of news stories that are that are in the tabs here online, ready ready to go, ready to be read, as well as documentary footage that we'll be sharing the audio from and listening uh, to information about squatting that happened. This was one that happened in London in 1975. There's a, some interviews about that, and this is in direct reference to the Mom, Moms for Housing and they have thankfully been offered uh, to able to buy the house from Wedgwood, which is a super evil company that came to their house that they were occupying with guns and traumatized people. And we also playing a little bit of an interview that two of the folks did with Democracy Now! about their experience with that. And there was a thread on Twitter that about feminist uh, feminist occupying space, and that's where I found the link to this little documentary that I'll be playing a bit of. I say little because I couldn't think of a better adjective. It's a little less than half an hour, and we'll be playing that later on in the program. Big thank you to folks for listening. Perhaps it's your first time. Perhaps you've listened before. Either way, thank you, and I appreciate it very much. And I volunteered this past week at, there was a Chani Nicholas talk at the Herbst Theater that was super informative and uh really appreciated it and she spoke with Fania Davis and learned a lot from that talk and also the land acknowledgement that she gave um, that Chani gave at the beginning was from uh, the Girls Rock Camp Alliance so I wanted to share that and I've been doing it now on the show for maybe a few months up to a year I don't know how exactly how long and I really appreciated the words that were used so again this is from the the Girls Rock Camp Alliance, which folks can also look up online, girlscamprockalliance.org. It's this awesome music camp for girls and trans and uh, GNC folks, non-binary folks, uh, youth across the world. There are camps that are here in the U.S. and in other countries, and it's also, uh, there's like a lot of scholarships available, so it's like a no one turned away type of thing, which is really awesome. And I've heard just amazing things about it. So, yeah, just a brief plug for this organization. And there, I will modify this land acknowledgement to fit our situation here at Mutiny Radio. 
as many of uh, USA resettler immigrants or descendants of those force, forcefully brought to this continent, we, Mutiny Radio, must recognize and never forget that our that this space here, this radio station, is occupied on traditional unceded Ohlone uh, lands. Uh, we honor and are grateful for the land we occupied and recognize the ongoing damage of settler colonialism. To recognize the land is an expression of gratitude and appreciation to those whose territory uh, we reside on and a way of honoring the indigenous people who have been living and working on the land from time immemorial. Excuse me, immemorial. It is important to understand the long-standing history that has brought us to reside on this land and to seek to understand our place within the history. Land acknowledgments do not exist in a past tense or historical contents, co context. Colonialism is a current ongoing process and we need to build our mindfulness and our present participation. It's also worth noting that acknowledging the land is indigenous protocol. And if folks would like to learn more about the Bay Area land in particular, you can go to uh, ramatosh.com and that's r-a-m-a-y-t-u-s-h.com and also check out the shumi land tax and that's s-h-u-u-m-i land tax um, <sighs> often i start the show with a bit of a rant and perhaps i'll get into it as i get into more of the news articles and thoughts come up and feel frustrated about things and Oh, there's just so much going on. So I guess I'll get right to the, I'll start off with some of the news articles and then we will, oh, yeah. I'm sure I will feel something at some point and feel the need to to speak up. And for now, I'll be sharing words from other folks. And this is a local headline and this is a positive thing and it's good to start with something positive. And again, the positive news stories we have on this show quite often are when something negative is stopped from happening or things are changed for the better and also recognizing that these negative things should not have existed in the first place. So it's from Democracy Now! You can also read about it in other places as well from January 23rd, San Francisco District Attorney's Office ends cash bail. In San Francisco, newly sworn in District Attorney Chesa Boudin, who was a guest on the show months ago. I've guess, I guess I've lost track of time, one could say, given how I've begun this show. My memory is a little bit wonky. Um, but Chesa wasn't here at the studio and had a great talk with him. And I also replayed the interview quite a bit because I thought it was really important. Many of us recognize that how important it is. And as faulty as uh, the system is, it also can be helpful to organize when you have folks in positions of power who look to challenge the system and recognize it for what it is. So this was a positive, really positive thing that Chesa was elected. So um, he's ended, or they have ended cash bail, uh, saying his office will no longer ask for cash as a condition for people's pre-trial release. Boudin and many others have strong criticized, excuse me, have long, I'm gonna, had a lot of coffee this morning. And by a lot, I mean two cups. Wow, look at me. I'm gonna slow down a bit. Boudin and many others have long criticized cash bail as disproportionately punishing defendants who are poor and people of color. The San Francisco District Attorney's Office says cash bail has also been applied unfairly with African-American defendants paying an average of 12 times more per year for pretrial release compared to white defendants. I've seen a few other write-ups about it as well. Also, I end up finding a lot of information through other sources on Twitter. So if you'd like to read up more and or follow I'm at at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R -E on Twitter and do a lot of 
sharing and retweeting. Also, protests happening. There's always protests happening around the world. What we actually find out about and what actually happens are two different things, of course. And so one in just the three that come to mind, Puerto Rico, uh, folks were protesting, trying to get their governor to resign. They brought a big guillotine to outside the, the governor's mansion. I believe it's the mansion. So that's a big thing. That's a big deal. That's pretty fucking awesome. And in France, folks were protesting and about pensions. And I've seen some footage and there's smoke and people in the streets. There's a lot going on. And then also in Baghdad, I, I believe it was like millions or at least a million, if not more, a lot of people in Baghdad who, who have been protesting, filling the street, um, asking, demanding that the U.S. leave. The U.S. who were never, <laughs> and the, by the U.S. military, I mean, uh, they were never welcome there. It wasn't like, oh, great, they're here. It's more like they, it's just been fucking imperialism. And folks have taken to the streets to be like, no, get the fuck out. Get the fuck out now. So sending lots of love and solidarity to all the folks who are able to, and all the folks who are able, lots of folks who aren't able, and or I uh, want to be as inclusive as I can with this language because I recognize that not everyone's able to go out. And uh, folks who support in any way that they're able, uh, a better world for everybody. That's what I honestly believe in. And uh, it, I believe a better world is possible. And again, we might not see it. I might not see it. But it's like little things and uh, looking to create a world where folks help each other instead of harm each other. And uh, there's rehabilitation instead of punishment for behavior. And resources are shared and everything is shared. There's more than enough to go around. And how do we change? I think part of it's like the narrative. That's a big thing is if their narrative is constantly lying and telling people to be afraid of each other and to fight one another. That's going to impact people's behavior and, and their thoughts. However, what if we offered health care? Okay, that brings me to the next story. This is a bad story. However, you can help. Yes, this is an action-item-oriented show. Action show. Anyway. Oh, goodness. Okay. <sighs> uh, last week on the show, I read a story about how South Dakota is looking to make it a felony for healthcare professionals to help trans youth. So obviously I'm of the mind that everyone deserves healthcare and affirming healthcare at that. As a trans person, I recognize how important it has been in my life when I've had doctors and physicians and other folks in my life who have been affirming, who have been like, believe me for when I say this is who I am and they say, oh yes, okay, great. What can I do to help you? It's really that simple. It, it should not be a fucking issue. However, there are folks who are spreading a lot of misinformation at times to cover, to cover their own tracks and to make an enemy out of people, especially marginalized folks, like trans youth. Like, I can't, like, wh why wouldn't you want to help youth? Why would you want to deny them health care? And also threaten the folks who are providing them health care. Like, they're threatening doctors. And it's similar to reproductive rights, too, where folks who provide abortions and or reproductive services are threatened. These are people who want to help. Why are you, what? Oh, I can't. Oh. So what's an action item? Well, one is you can like fucking show up if you're a cis person and show up and defend trans trans lives everywhere. Trans Lifeline is a great resource one can donate to. Uh, it's also a a hotline for it's run by created by and run by trans folks. Um, 
the creators were on the show a couple years ago, three years ago, four, I don't know, but check out the archives. They're there. One day I'll have a whole index up of the show and all the guests, the amazing folks I've been privileged enough to speak with here on the program. So Trans Lifeline is a great organization folks can donate to and also just put out the word. It's for U.S. and Canada only, I believe, at the moment. Um, they also provide, I believe they do also provide some financial um, assistance for folks through the Trans Assistance Project, but definitely like look into it and yeah oh yeah okay so those are the folks that you should support and other folks that one can pressure would be the governor of south dakota to veto this bill which is hb 1057 you can tweet um stop or hashtag no hb 1057 and the governor's name is Kristen or christy noem and that's at g-o-v-k-r-i-s-t-i-n-o-e-m and you can also if you go to sd.gov forward slash governor forward slash contact, you can find information there to also call, write, do whatever you can, get your folks to as well, especially if you're like people in, in South Dakota, but it should be up to everyone. And there's that old saying, just because it's not your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. And that's that thing where, yeah, the, the world we live in is really fucked. Systems have been in place for a very long time to keep it that way. And also, it's up to us to dismantle that and to create a better world that's free for everybody. Cool. Okay. So those were the first few stories I wanted to get to. Oh, gosh. And there's more terrible things that are happening. Spoiler alert! It's a news program, and it's it's disturbing. And also, the only way to deal with it is to like acknowledge what's happening and find solutions and also see in other points in history so we can hopefully prevent it from happening. I had a dream a few nights ago. I've been having really intense dreams. I usually do anyway, but like especially since I've gotten sober, it's like, whoa, really clear, really vivid. And I was on a train, and it got crowded, and then people started disappearing. And then people had to – we realized that people had to kind of get off the train and like either go a different – just pretty much go a different way, or else we're going to just end up going to a place we didn't want to go because we didn't really have control. And also at one point, a person had a gun pointed at me, and thankfully they didn't shoot me. However, it was like, oh, this is frightening. And then I start seeing all these uh, images of the Holocaust, and then it turns out like the Holocaust Museum. And then I heard recently that it's a reminder that the Holocaust Memorial Day is coming up on the 27th. So I think partially that was in my subconscious as well. And in terms of how ICE has been operating and the police in this country have been operating, and the government, et cetera, et cetera, just the ongoing abuse and violence towards so many people. And, you know, if they're not stopped, it's going to continue. It's going to get even worse. They're going to get even more people. And, like, it's already even, you know, it's always been fucking bad in this country, to be honest. And it's become more and more overt and more and more apparent. And I think sometimes folks don't recognize this until it affects them directly and or people they know directly and or they finally see it on TV and or they finally, people finally take notice. And more has to be done to stop what's happening. Okay. So uh, I did mention the narrative and I guess I'll just hop to this story. Hop. I don't know. I said hop. I'll hop to this story. Um, to start, and that has to do with uh, journalism, and it goes to the whole idea with narrative and the stories that people that we hear, what what facts do we actually hear, and how journalists continue to get threatened, and whistleblowers are still threatened and imprisoned, and it's like, why are the whistleblowers in prison? Chelsea Manning's in jail, Julian Assange is in jail, yet the war criminals are the ones going free. 
Dick Cheney's walking around. Karl Rove is walking around. Yet people who point out war crimes, they're the ones who are in jail. Similar to Ramsey Ora, Orta, who videotaped uh, police violence, a killing. I think about that quite a bit. He filmed the death of Eric Garner, and he was sent to jail. Not the police who actually killed Eric Garner, but the person who witnessed it and shared that information. Oh, it's backwards. It's very backwards, and I think it's to live in this country, to understand what's happening, to know what's happening, it's like, what the fuck? How, and also, it's been going on. I mean, I feel like I would imagine when, this, when I started doing this in 2013, this show, it was similar. It, and I know it was certainly similar. I'm just thinking about like my opinion and my feelings on it. It's like things have only gotten worse. Okay. So we're going to go to this article here, and I probably won't read all of it. It's pretty long, but I do want to read a little bit of it and share it with folks. So if you'd like to read more, you can please do check it out. The Empire's War on Oppositional Journalism Continues to Escalate, and this was written by Caitlin Johnstone for Medium. You can check it out at medium.com, and it was published on January 21st, and you can follow, also follow Caitlin Johnstone on Twitter. And they start off with, there's a start off with a, a passage from the New York Times, citing intercepted messages between Mr. Greenwald and the hackers. Prosecutors say the journalists played a clear role in facilitating the commission of a crime for instance, prosecutors contend that Mr. Greenwald encouraged the hackers to delete archives that had already been shared with the Intercept Brazil in order to cover their tracks. Prosecutors also say that Mr. Greenwald was communicating with the hackers while they were actively monitoring private chats on Telegram, a messaging app. The complaint charged six other individuals, including four, who were detained last year in connection with a cell phone hacking. This argument is essentially indistinguishable from the argument currently being used by the Trump administration in charging Assange with 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act. The U.S. Department of Justice alleges that Assange attempted to provide Private Manning with advice and assistance in covering her tracks while leaking documents she already had access to, therefore for making Assange party to a conspiracy against the United States. It's not surprising that Brazil is advancing the same war on journalism we've been seeing in the U.S., U.K., Australia, and France. With the election of the overtly, overtly fascist Jair Bolsonaro in October 2018, an election whose corrupt foundations were exposed by Greenwald's reporting with the Intercept Brazil, the Brazilian government moved into full alignment with the U.S. centralized empire, which was why his inauguration was enthusiastically celebrated by characters like 45, Mike Pompeo, Sean Bolton, and Benjamin Netanyahu. It is in exactly the same way we saw a coordination between the U.S., U.K., Sweden, Ecuador, and Australia to immobilize and then silence and then imprison Julian Assange. We are seeing a uniform movement toward silencing oppositional journalism throughout the entire U.S. centralized empire. This is because a rising China and the increasing coziness of the cluster of nations which have resisted absorption into the imperial blob greatly imperil the USA's position as the unpopular global dominator, meaning that the empire needs to quickly shore up global control in order to avoid being surpassed and replaced by other power structures. In order to accomplish this, there is going to be a lot of nefarious behavior, a lot of military escalations, a lot of CIA coups, a lot of bullying and subversion, 
and a whole lot of propaganda to grease the wheels of public consent. Such large, frantic, flailing movements can easily be exposed by a free press, which is precisely why the free press is being clamped down upon now. The empire is setting all these legal precedents against oppositional journalism because it fully intends to use those precedents in the future. It fully intends to use those legal precedents in the future because it knows it's going to have to make things ugly. This is all being done to prevent the public from gaining a clear understanding of what's really going on in their world. Because if the public had a clear understanding of what's going on in their world, the empire would forever lose its ability to control them and rule them. Whoever controls the narrative controls the world. The imperialists understand this. The public, by and large, do not. And the imperialists intend to keep it that way. Glenn Greenwald has spent the last three years being falsely smeared as a stooge of authoritarian governments while he was actually doing more damage to an authoritarian government than all of his critics combined. Public trust in oppressive institutions like the oppressive institutions that Empire loyalists have been protecting by smearing Greenwald as a Kremlin agent and a puppin, excuse me, puppin, making up words now, uh, and a poop, excuse me, Putin puppet uh, can be severely weakened by the exposure of their dark underbellies and the light of truth. I'm also going to just comment that uh, wanting to lean away from using the word dark as something nefarious and light as something good because of all the connotations with that. The imperialists know this, and they are determined not to allow it to continue, hence their persecution of Assange, and hence their persecution of Greenwald. All right, so you can find that article. I ended up reading it all. Uh, <laughs> that happened. And you can also, there's also a Bitcoin donation uh, for the writer that folks can use, and, and I... Uh, What's it called? It's a, uh, oh my, I'm, my memory. Um, it's a, uh, I can't think of it. You all know, head to the article if you're able to. It's on medium.com, written by Caitlin Johnstone. Uh, QR code, that's it. QR code, you can also find information there for Bitcoin to donate to the writer as well. All right. I'm going to play a little bit more from The Harder They Come, and then we'll be back with some more after this.
Welcome back to the Weekly Review. I have a fundraiser here I wanted to share. Stop the Demolition and Preserve 227 Duffield Street. And you can find this on Twitter, and it's also GoFundMe. I've shared it now on the Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-A-R. Please retweet a little bit about this campaign. Please help with, the last, with a last-ditch effort to save 227 Duffield, a site on the Underground Railroad in downtown Brooklyn from demolition. Please support the hashtag Abolitionist Challenge to raise $5 million as soon as possible to buy back the property from the developer. And this is from uh, Friends of Abolitionist Place are raising money to buy back the abolitionist home of 227 Duffield Street and make it a museum to preserve Brooklyn's abolitionist history. The home belonged to a prominent to prominent abolitionists Harriet and Thomas Truesdell and was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Due to gentrification, the property is now owned by private developers who want to demolish the home as soon as possible to build a 13-story luxury residential complex. The demolition of 227 Duffield is imminent and can happen any day now unless we stop it. In the 1980s, former owner Mama Joy, may she rest in power, discovered a door in the basement. Upon further investigation, she learned the door was a historical entrance where people escaping enslavement dropped eight feet from the backyard into a sub-basement that led into a tunnel to travel from house to house inconspicuously. And they have footage of the basement. There's a link in the GoFundMe. Additional research revealed the home belonged to abolitionists Thomas and Harriet Truesdell during the 1850s when the Fugitive Slave Act was the law of the land. The Truesdells are known to have been friends with and hosted the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. Located in a part of downtown Brooklyn that was a hotbed for Underground Railroad activity, 227 Duffield Street is close to the former home of conductor William Harned, and institutions such as Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church, the former Bridge Street African Wesleyan Methodist Episcopal Church, and Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims, all which have been documented stops on the Underground Railroad. Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims once held the nickname Grand Central Depot of the National Underground Railroad System. Today, the property at 227 Duffield Street is the last known standing site of the historic abolitionist residences in Brooklyn, which have all been demolished due to New York City's downtown Brooklyn development plan and have been replaced with 30-story buildings towering over this historical beacon. 
Can you imagine a street named Abolitionist Place devoid of abolitionist landmarks? The city of New York is refusing to acknowledge this significant piece of abolitionist and anti-racist history in Brooklyn. Buying the property back at market value is our only chance to save it, as the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission has not agreed to investigate the home for landmark status. It is our duty to ensure the legacy of resistance to unjust and inhumane laws in New York City and this country is not only remembered, but celebrated and passed on to future generations. We must not stop working to commemorate 227 Duffield Street slash abolitionist place as a museum, as a bastion of abolitionist activity, a history of which we can all be proud. Please support the hashtag abolitionist challenge to raise $5 million as soon as possible to buy back the property from the developer. Hashtag stop this demolition. Hashtag save 227 Duffield. Hashtag black landmarks matter. Hashtag Black History Matters. Hashtag Preserve Black History. Hashtag Brooklyn is not for sale. And they also provide press information from New York One News, Curbed, Brooklyn Eagle, and City Lab. So again, this is a GoFundMe. I've also shared it on Twitter as well. And I'm going to look at the, um, excuse me, the link right now. And also uh, was originally shared by uh, Equality Flatbush, which I encourage folks to follow, and oops, going to, um, you can follow them on Twitter, at Equal Flatbush um, on Twitter, so please do follow them, and also they have a website, equalityforflatbush.org. <sighs> on the theme of developers wanting to take over homes i'm gonna switch over and uh talk a little bit about or i'm not gonna talk i'm just gonna play some information some interviews uh from moms for housing they're back on democracy now or uh, misty cross was one of the mothers and then uh, carol fife who's an activist who's with them um i believe i haven't seen this entire interview i'm gonna play a little bit of it it's from democracy now and i'll play a clip it's been shared on democracy now and moms for housing Oh. From the House, um, battering rams, SWAT teams, arrested, and now Wedgwood Properties, which owns the house, um, is saying you can buy it through the land trust. Skeptical of that. Um, we're still in negotiations with that, even though we're glad that Wedgwood wants to come forth and do the right thing. We're still skeptical on how this whole agreement came into play. Um, it went on with our mayor, Libby Schaff, behind closed doors. We still don't understand what the agreement was that brought them to the table, being as that we had City Council Representative Rebecca Kaplan and Nikki Bass who helped negotiate um, agreements through the land trust from the beginning. So we're still skeptical of what Redgewood really wants to agree on why are they now trying to settle things after all of this trauma has been caused to them right and there's also an article from the guardian mothers who occupied vacant oakland house will be will be allowed to buy it uh, intervention of california governor they say helps moms for housing grow victory fight against the state's climate crisis and that was written by vivian ho and that came out on january 20th i uh, may get a chance to to share a little bit of that um, later on in the program, and if not, please do check out.
check it out again from the Guardian. Mothers who occupied vacant Oakland house will be allowed to buy it. Uh, but again, it's best to hear from the mothers directly. And I also wanted to uh, share on the Moms for Housing Twitter, which you can follow at Moms4, the number four housing. You can also find them online, moms4housing.org. Their pin tweet, uh, please sign and share our petition to hold our sheriff's department accountable for this unnecessary militarized raid that traumatized our West Oakland neighborhood. And again, they came in, the sheriffs came in with like AR-15s and like tanks, all because folks were seeking shelter. That's pretty fucked up. And they also arrested people. So you can sign the petition. Again, it's a change.org petition. But if you go to Moms for Housing on Twitter, uh, they provide a link to the petition there as well. All right, moving along, I'm going to play a... Um, clip here, an audio clip mentioned earlier. It's from Crossroads Women. And I'll read a little bit, spent out about this recently. Uh, created by a group of 16 to 21 year olds as a youth training project, this film includes archived photographs, a pop-up book, film clips, interviews with some of the founders and users over a six month period in 2014. Donna, Nathan, and Holly trained with Rob Logan. They learned photography, video editing, interviewing, and archiving skills to produce a short film. This was premiered on January 23rd, 2015 at the center before a packed audience of different generations of the Crossroads community and marked the 40th anniversary of the center. The film traces different buildings, memories, struggles, and activities of the center up to its current home in Kentish Town, and this is in London. So again, this is a little over 25-minute 20, video here you can find online at crossroadswomen.net forward slash watch our film. And again, I found this on a Twitter thread. I'm going to go back here. Let's see if I can provide the specific. Uh, it's a feminine, feminist housing video. Oh, oh yes, by uh, Feminist City, and that's at F-E-M-I-N-I-S-C-I-T-Y, and it's a thread of feminist occupations. So this is just one of the many, and it was inspired by Moms for Housing, uh, the thread. So yeah, let's play this <laughs> where did it go uh okay it's coming along one there we go great all right we'll play this video and be back uh, afterwards our women's center began as a squat Crossroad Women's Center. The story of six buildings and over 15 groups beginning in 1975. This is London, 1975. Put on work 50 years for nothing, they love. I know. Would you like to get some back pay? Ask him. I don't suppose the government will give me any money now. No, not by yourself, but with millions of us got together all over the world and demanded it. What would you think about that? Oh, if they all stuck together, we might get something. Our first centre was in 
1975 129 Drummond Street, Houston. when uh, we squatted it, a building at 129 Drummond Street, right near Houston Station. Wages for housework for and all women from the it state. Used to be, it was a whole big squatting community there. Now the centre, it was actually opened by the Wages for Housework campaign because uh, there wasn't really anywhere for women you know, to meet, bring their concerns. Another point of organisation for us is our women's centre. Women come in to tell us about the struggles they're involved in, to chat, to find out what other women are doing, to see what facilities are open to them, to see how they can make contact with other women so that they can be stronger in the struggles that they're involved in. And women just started to, to come along. I mean, the first visitors were women um, housewives from the Bangladeshi community who had a, a number of issues. Uh, one, that they were being forcibly injected with the contraceptive Deprivera. So we had to take that up with the hospital. Uh, they were also facing eviction because the whole area, they were squatting and they were facing eviction because the area was being redeveloped. And a number of organisations were beginning to form. As you know, there's a number of, I don't know, something like 15, 16, 17 groups and projects in that base at the centre now. But in the early days, um, there were much fewer. You know, there were black women for wages for housework formed. English case for prostitutes, wages due lesbians, women against rape, you know, kind of started in that centre, you know, began to meet there. I think when we started um, the, the Women's Centre, it was a squat, we, there was no funding and many of the groups, or all of the groups when they started, um, came together because they wanted to um, organise and to change things. Yeah. Um, we were there probably about two years and then we were forced out again part of the redevelopment and temporarily moved to another squat on Durham Street for the summer, but it was quite a summer. <laughs> now and uh, it was just very exciting, you know, the 70s, there was just a lot going on. You felt there was kind of a lot of new ground, you know, there were a lot of squats. We were not the only squat by any means. You just felt squatting was a kind of a standard thing. If your building was too small or you were evicted, I lived in squats myself. I squatted a number of flats and you just squatted. So you felt that it was easier to live without a lot of money. Um, General strike in Iceland. I've spent all morning scrubbing floors and choking on the dust, trying hard to clean my kitchen sink to drain pipes for the rust. The midwife comes tomorrow, and if this squad don't look fine, then it's off to London Hospital. They'll induce me when it's time, and the Queen sailed up to Canada on her private yacht, while the council calls me a parasite for living. Then after that, the, the, they really seriously did want to completely evict us, and that is when we went down to the town hall and took over the members' room in the town hall for a day. Um, I chained myself to the railings of the balcony. Uh, local squatters came out to support. Um, you know, outside they were picketing and sending food up to us through a basket. 
and uh, we got a you know petition with thousands of signatures you know, from the local community saying you know save our women's centre. So that's also you know down over the balcony onto this dam, spilling into the street. And we went to our um, mass to uh, to um, Ken Livingstone's office. He at that time was the chair of Camden Housing Department. And he was obviously astonished to um, have all these women saying how they needed a women's centre and, you know, he had to do something. Um, and he said, well, actually, there are some places, and he had no option to say, really, that there were some places and he would look into it. And soon after, he said there was a place, 71 Tunbridge Street, which we moved into in 1979. It was a very dilapidated place, but... It was three rooms and a kitchen, so compared to our previous places, it seemed vast. <laughs> and uh, we, um, we were there for 18 years. I was home for 18 years. I arrived at the... King's Cross Women's Centre, which was located in Tonbridge Street. Yeah. And uh, I, was, I was like, okay, where is this women's centre? And I could see some signs, a hundred and signs on the wall, which fascinated me because I was a sign writer. So I thought, well, this is the centre, let me, let me go into this. And I was absolutely astonished when I walked in as to how small the uh, space was from quite an early time trying to help with um, refurbishing some of the problems and, and dealing with some of the problems as best we could. Um, and on average I would come up probably once a month to London when I say come up at the time I was living in Bristol so you know it was 120 miles to come up um, and then I began to increase the frequency and the centre then became a real sort of second home for me. In some ways, the memorable times have also been the times when we weren't actually in the centre and have been about what we've managed to uh, organise as, as the different groups that are based here, um, working collectively together. I'll tell you one thing that's true is true. We wouldn't be free, but I'm telling you, there'd be a lot of wages due. And there'd be a lot of wages due for every time we smile. In order to get a tip or two to make it almost worthwhile. And there'd be a lot of wages due for every time we're raped. And there'd be a lot of wages due for each time that we escape. Now what do you think would happen if we women went on strike? There'd be no breakfast in the morning, there'd be no screw at night. There'd be no nurses treating you, there'd be no waitress serving you. Be no typist typing you, it'd be all right. There'd be no mothers nursing you, there'd be no wives waiting on you. There'd be no daughters pleasing you, it'd be all right. There'd be a lot of wages due for every time we smile. In order to get a tip or two to make it almost worthwhile And there'd be a lot of wages due for every time we're raped You know, it didn't happen overnight but, you know, with time got more involved at the centre and then 
the following year after I'd met the centre, we started the Invisible Group in 1984. So, um, so that was really why I got involved was was the feeling of being welcomed and included was really the main the main draw. Mm. And also that everyone was there. I mean, the thing is that um, differences between people were were acknowledged and and worked out. It wasn't that they were they weren't passed over, but um, you know, it was just an opportunity to to meet a lot of different people on a on a base on an equal basis. Well, I got involved in uh, nineteen eighty three. Um, I was at a college. Um, I was at a polytechnic in Kentish Town, as it happens. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the room, in the front room at the King's Cross Women's Centre and just looking around at the walls and the things that were on the walls. And I've been learning, I was studying philosophy and I've been learning about Marx. <laughs> and, and I remember sitting there and thinking, my God, this is the real thing. <laughs> you know, I've really found the real thing in action. You know, this is like a real community movement. We got a call saying, oh, there's an occupation, can you come? And it was called by sex workers together with Women Against Rape. And a woman had gone into a church in King's Cross to protest against police illegality and racism. Uh, the women had been absolutely targeted by the police, hounded, and so decided to go into a church uh, following the example of the French sex worker strike in the 70s. So we went down. I was a student at the time, and I was just blown away because it was all kinds of women. Uh, black women's groups came. Women came from Greenham Common. Tony Ben came with his wife. Uh, women, mothers... Uh, women came with babies. There are about five women with little tiny babies, mm. and those mm. those babies are now adult adults now with kids of their own. So it was just um, that was a period when I really got involved with the center because you felt power of different sectors getting together: sex workers, women of color, women, men, and just a tremendous experience. And sometimes there was also uh, attacks from fascist National Front in the area. Mm -hmm. There was um, they put like kill queers on the door. And they also padlocked uh, a black women's meeting, and they also threatened to firebomb the centre with the English collector of prostitutes uh, in it. But again, I mean, whenever we were faced with these kind of, you know, threats or needed support, we really found we were able to count on the local community. People really came out, and our slogan was "Share the housework, sweep out the Nazis." You know, we kind of marched around the streets, and in fact, they did actually go. And it really was a community resource and I remember um, how strong it was as a community resource when the, when the council tried to throw us out, um, which was started I think in uh, 1995, thereabouts, maybe a bit earlier, when there was an attempt to um, gentrify and clean up King's Cross and uh, we had a we had a ball actually fighting against the closure of the centre. But it was not one we were going to win in the sense of actually keeping that centre. So we certainly could see when it, you know, after being there so 18 years and I mean, communities near and far.
kind of really came out in support. There was a huge fundraising effort to kind of you know keep the centre going, and that led to us moving into Kentish Town, two three zero Kentish Town Road, which we called the Crossroads Women's Centre. I was one of the people who was quite heavily involved in refurbishing that centre too, you know, down, right down to physical work cause, because uh, it included um, relaying the electrical wiring. Uh, I had some of the skills for doing that, um, doing the lighting, but we had a lot of help. You know, people were very... I think they were very struck by the fact that as a women's group we wanted to put our energy into making a place and space for ourselves and for the community and not just settle for any old space. Space across the road is mu was much, much bigger. Uh, space across the road was also wheelchair accessible when we moved there. Um, and it would meant that we could just meet, you know, the different groups based at the Women's Centre could have more space to meet independently but also meet together and we could have like public meetings, film showings, things like that, which we really couldn't have properly in the other one in King's Cross. Uh, we had when visible, um, had self-help sessions, uh, learning about different changes in the benefit system that the government was bringing in. We had like, you know, people speaking to each other, and including people from our countries who are wheelchair users and how they organized. You know, the homeopathic clinic and other complementary the All African Women's Group is a group of women asylum seekers from all over the world. It was formed in 2003 and is a self-help group. We help and support each other and we speak out against injustice. It may be injustice about housing and medical care, but mainly the asylum system. We meet every two weeks at the Crossroads Women's Centre there are 40 to 50 women at each meeting. We also volunteer at the sessions that happen during the week, where we work with other women's groups like Black Women's Rape Action Project and Women Against Rape, taking calls from women in detention. We are often a lifeline for women inside Yazwood. We use our experience of being in detention and going through the asylum system to give women suggestions on what to do and send them information like legal action for women's asylum guide. Most of the women who come to the group are mothers. Most of us have suffered rape and other torture. Some of us are separated from our children who were forced to leave behind when we fled. We see women who come to the group crying, destitute and alone. Within a month, they are able to support themselves, understand where the cases have gone wrong and come out fighting. One unique thing about this women's centre and our group is that any member of all African women's group is a person with a name and a face, whereas with men organisation you find that you are just a statistic. The group gives us strength. We get called bogus asylum seekers and suffer racism and other discrimination. If an individual was to come out and speak out, they could be targeted. But as a group, we stand and we are strong. Asylum seekers, single mother self defence, 
Blow All Women Strike, they kind of all started, really got going in that centre. But in fact, we quite quickly, um, when, you know, we realised it was actually going to get too small and almost straight away started having to fundraise and actually look for a bigger place. most difficult thing was to raise the money to do it in the first place. That was hell on wheels. And people were so astonished that a group of grassroots women could get this together that they really pitched in to help and donated, donated things for the sales that we had, you know, to raise money and the Christmas fairs and things like that. Some people came to paint, you know, because we had to do that painting to save the money. And people volunteered. They were very kind. And they really felt that they were making it their centre, which indeed they had done. And there were working groups on the disability access and the solar panels and the insulation and, you know, keep making it sustainable and making it green and disability accessible. And so it was a lot of work over, I think it was about a year we were working on it in total. We can now kind of have much, much bigger public